Mike Mattles and Dr. Luis Cruz are two of the foremost educators of our time. They are both authors, speakers, and former practitioners who fiercely walk their talk. Mike has written close to 30 books, many bestsellers, including one of the best-selling education books of all time, Learning by Doing, which he co-authored with the late Rick and Becky DeFore, Bob Aker, and Tom Many. He is co-creator of the RTI at Work model, which builds upon the professional learning communities at work process. And his book, Taking Action, which he co-wrote with Austin Buffum and Janet Malone, is one of the best-selling response to intervention books of all time. Luis Cruz is also a best-selling author, as he co-authored the book, Time for Change, Four Essential Skills for Transformational School and District Leaders with Dr. Anthony Muhammad. Luis is also the creator of the event Solucionis, which focuses on ensuring high levels of learning for our students who are learning English as an additional language, or as Luis likes to say, our students who are halfway to bilingual. I was fortunate enough for a few years to travel with these two education heavyweights and share the stage presenting to educators throughout the United States. So without further ado, let's welcome to a conversation with Brian, my dear, dear friends, Mike Mattles and Dr. Luis Cruz. Mike and Louise, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. What's up, Big hey, B? Um, How you doing, Miguelito? Good to see you guys. Always every, good to see you. Everything is all good. Hey, at the beginning of every one of my shows, I um, ask my, my, my guests to talk a little bit about their personal story and their professional journey, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start with two nights ago. How about our Lakers? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You know, they're, they're, they're going to be making some noise. There's only one sports team that's like, if they win or lose, like it wrecks my mood. And, <laughs> and that's, and that's the Lakers. I've been a fan since I was nine. And so, uh, yeah, there, there's at least a little bit of hope in this season right now for a so, while there. It wasn't looking very good. Yeah. So I'm going to get you two on the record. This is my podcast. So it's going to be on Spotify and YouTube. So if healthy, if healthy, we still are in the uh, playoffs right now in the playing game. How far can we get? My my belief is that we can definitely make some noise, definitely get past the first round, make it to at least the Western Conference semifinals. All right. All right, Mike. Phoenix, hold on. Let me say Phoenix and Denver are scary. That's all I got to say. Well, did, did you see what happened to Kevin Durant? Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's it's a warm up. Dang. I, it's, it sounds like me getting hurt before I even step on the court. 
<laughs> By the way, B, I I like you had a we in there. Um, we we, <laughs> we must say Brian's got to have a fair weather like. Oh come on! <laughs> when they're when they're doing well, well, we get these great texts about how about our team, and when they're losing, we're like, <laughs> like how about your team? <laughs> I'm a I'm a fan who tells the truth. I'm a fan who's like a coach. So you you guys are just fans who just believe everything and you won't look at the the real deal when they're struggling and you you got to look at the real deal so don't forget to be don't forget that i played semi-pro ball in my filipino oh, we're gonna talk about your ball louise <laughs> <laughs> so mike how far are they gonna get if they're um, i would agree with louise I, I i think minimum is second round i think they have an outside chance to make the conference finals um the championship this year LeBron and and AD would have to play insane like they did in the bubble year. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say they're gonna get to the champion to the uh, the conference finals. And so so we'll we'll see. I like so, that. I like that. We're gonna talk about you two in a few minutes, but I'm gonna just kind of mess with you in terms of our ball. So you know everybody knows that I used to play basketball and I was I was decent. And so Luis knew knew that I played basketball. And he wants to challenge me. So audience, he wants to challenge me in outside of Chicago at one of our institutes. And I can't play anymore. I, I've had a hip replacement. I can't run. And he, I said, so yeah, we'll play some horse. And so um, he's like, oh, I can, I can take him. And my first shot, I spin the ball on my finger. I punch the ball in and get H on, on Luis and the rest is history. He was just demoralized. He couldn't even make a layup after that. Hey, for the record, I can't spin a ball on my finger. All right. So you <laughs> well, the only weakness I have, and you and you won me at horse. Yeah. So let's just be clear. Okay? And then my bas my basketball story with Mike is I get Mike up one day. We were I think in Minnesota, and I get him fam, like some god awful time. Yeah, and I, get him, I get him up, and we are we're playing, and we do some some drills and stuff. And I was actually pretty surprised. So afterwards, I said, Mike, you're better than I thought you were. And no, that's not what you said. Oh, you freaking liar. <laughs> he looks at me and he goes, Mike, you aren't as bad as I thought you'd be. That is what you said to me. It is nice to know that the bar oh. is so low. Oh. Hey, I want you to know that I was the starting junior varsity shooting guard in the 29 Palms High School Wildcat basketball team. That went undefeated that year, I might add. So while well, I might not have played in Division One like someone on the screen, might not have played in Europe as a professional like oh. someone on the screen, and I might not be the starting center on my Filipino league. I actually did at some point have a minimal amount of skill somehow brian thought i would have zero skill no, I, I, Not I, was, I was impressed and, and i have to be honest um i went later on and saw luis at one of his basketball games and he tore it up tore it up it was actually you. he tore it up so much that i got my phone out and i started commentating he yeah. was just on fire so i was impressed with both of your games Thank you, thank you. Autographs later, if you'd like these. <laughs> so let's let's get to to you two. I, I um I respect the heck out of you. You're like brothers to me. I you know we text. You know doesn't you know there's not a week that goes by that we don't text with each other. Okay. And I, and again, we spent a lot of time. You know the, you know a couple of years ago together on the road. But talk to me a little bit about your journeys um, as people and as educators. Louise or Mike, you can start first because I think people need to know how important it is 
to one, to be able to do what you're doing now, but also to understand that it wasn't easy along the way. Louis, start Okay, so I'll go, I'll go ahead and get started. Thanks, Mike. Um, my journey is one whereby um, I'm what we refer to as a first-generation American. Uh, my parents are from Ecuador. I was that English language learner when he got to school, even though I had my basic interpersonal communication skills down, I was still learning academic English, still am, to be honest with you. Um, and the first in my family to graduate from high school in this country, my father is a retired civil engineer from Ecuador. But when I became a teacher, I fell in love with the fact that um, I loved working with kids that were learning English as an additional language, because personally, I see that as an asset, not a deficit. Sure. And I also especially loved working in communities that were struggling economically, because I felt that if we can get those kids to make it in a system never designed for them to make it, then we would be changing not just their lives, but generations thereafter. And so I go on to become um, an elementary school teacher, loved teaching fifth grade for about seven years, eight years. And in the evenings, I would teach citizenship, uh, citizenship classes to adults, uh, English to, adult uh, to adults in our community. I also in the summertime worked with middle school and high school kids, teaching them several forms of history, and then went on to become an elementary school assistant principal, a middle school principal, a high school principal, and was so successful implementing the things that Mike and others taught me that now I have joined this amazing team of people and travel around the country teaching everyone what I call is how to redesign a system that was never created for all kids. And so in a nutshell, that's my story. Thanks, Luis. Mike. I was, uh, I was very, very fortunate. Grew up with phenomenal parents. Um, very small town in the desert, uh, high desert California, but the kind of town where you grow up knowing everyone at the local store and grew up with dear, dear, dear friends I went through almost every grade with. Um, uh, grew up with, with, with parents where I never had to worry about a meal, you know, never had to worry about Santa not coming this year. So, you know, um, very fortunate for that. Um, school, though, because I was raised I am born with a speech impediment I stutter um certainly had its impact upon me early on and I remember even though I grew up in a small town I had phenomenal teachers I just I, I just look back at my childhood and the ineffective teacher or the teacher didn't deeply care about me or both deeply cared about me and were super effective I mean I count on one hand the ineffective ones the ones that positively impacted me i i i i, I it, it'd be hard to count mm -hmm. and and a few of them just transform my life academically so yeah. to have love and support at home and then to have people that that don't look at what you're not good at so you know i don't think many people when i was in elementary school and i couldn't get a sentence out without stuttering and that impacted the way that I spelt because I couldn't sound things out in my head. So impacted my reading and spelling. Most people wouldn't think I'd someday be a national speaker and an author. But I'll tell you, I had elementary school teachers that saw that I could. And I had junior high and high school teachers that saw that I could. And, and I've always, I, I remember being keenly aware in fourth and fifth grade that other kids and actually other family members didn't have the same sequence of teachers and and 
based upon what their experiences were, they didn't have the same experiences at school. I remember just feeling that's so unfair. Why, why am I getting lucky and I'm getting these experiences and I'm watching other people that I care about who are not getting those same experiences. So, um, uh, wanted to become a teacher for my sophomore year of college, wanted to give back to others the way teachers gave to me, love teaching, never planned to leave the classroom. Um, only left the classroom for a raise, <laughs> uh, was in administration. And then here's where, Brian, if you don't mind, I'm going to toss out a question to all, all of us here. Yep. Because I think all of us saw that we could have an impact in 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 in, in the classroom. I know, Brian, for you also as, as, as a counselor and some other, you know, hats. But, and I think I knew intuitively that there were certain things that would benefit kids better, like if teachers worked collaboratively, um, yeah. you know, um, getting clear on what kids should learn, um, providing extra time and support for kids. But I never saw it as how could you do it where you can guarantee it to all kids until I think that all the experience that we had is at some point we were exposed to this concept of professional learning communities, me through, through, through Rick DeFore the first time. Yep. And the first time I heard him speak, it just, it put together ideas that intuitively I knew would be better for kids. And, and whatever my job was, be a classroom teacher or a team leader or an assistant principal later, I just, I knew there were good things there. I just never saw how you could make it work for a whole school. And, and when I heard Rick talk, it just like put together puzzle pieces into a picture that I could see. It's like, this could happen for every kid. Yeah, it really could, you know. And you know, as, as as Rick used to say, once you once you know better, you have a responsibility to do better. So we just started doing the work. Yeah, and that started to lead to better differences for every kid. Yeah, and I think throughout my career, I felt that, like I felt like you know I've worked in good schools and and with great people, but there is always something tugging at me. Like we're not getting to every kid. And we have all these people working so hard, committed. They they have a lot of expertise, but somehow we're not getting on the same page. But then I moved to a, a, a new district and then I heard Rick speak and Becky. And I'm like, this is like a basketball practice. Everything that we're talking about, you know, identifying essential skills, working together, you know, assessing constantly, intervening, extending, all those things we did in basketball my entire life. And I'm like, this made sense. It was like, ah. Uh, uh, yeah, that's it, that kind of, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Remember like in like the nineties, there was that fad that came around. It was like these pitchers and 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 like, and like, and like they were called magic eye. And it's like, it, it, it was like all these squiggles and stuff like that. And people would go, oh no, you look past it. And you there, and there's like, there's like a hippopotamus with a hat in there. Yeah. And it's by yeah. a palm tree and you're like, I don't see anything. And then all of a sudden your eyes adjust yeah. and this whole thing opens up. It becomes clear. Like that's what that's what like Rick Rick like did for me one day. It's all of a sudden it's like all of it was there. I just didn't see how it fit. And all of a sudden it's just like Yeah. Yeah, I was a guy that looked really hard, still couldn't see it, but pretended I did so my friends wouldn't make fun of me. <laughs> as far as as far as this this process goes, that's exactly I think Mike, you did a great job of describing. And here, to me, was the best part of it. I never felt like people that were uh, teaching me about the PLC process, whether that was Rick DeFore, 
later on, Anthony Muhammad, and then my dear friend now, Mike Matos, I wasn't being sold software. I wasn't being sold a program. Yeah. What we're basically saying is that in your building, you have all the components you need. Yeah. You just have to learn how to create synergy amongst the adults on campus, focused on specific things that you deem essential for kids to learn, and then go to work with all the other things that we know are part of the PLC process. So for me, I, I compliment and, and really agree with what Mike is saying insofar as what was it that lit it up for us to really want to embrace this work moving forward. You know, the thing is, and, and Mike, we're going to you know jump into your work in a few seconds, but the thing is, we can we can have people see it clearly, but still the work doesn't get done at times because there is still this this need or I don't know if it's a need or whatever, but we we want to hold on to this traditional system or traditional ways. And so Luis, you and Anthony have actually made it even clearer on how we can actually help people who tradi traditionally resist, you know, change. To, to move forward. So can you talk a little bit about your book, Time for Change, and those four essential skills? Because I think that's really important for us to be able to do this work. And so people need to understand or have those tools to be able to do, to do this work. Yeah, well, our book is not one of the ones behind Brian. So I just want to put that out there. Okay, uh, you so know what? Right before I, I turned it on, I'm like, <laughs> right before I turned it on, I'm like, I did not have Luis's book It's okay. I'll, I'll forgive you this time, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. And that is that, you know, Anthony Mohammed, who's a dear friend to all of us and one of the giants in our profession, is the one that really sort of begins this conversation with his epic transforming school culture. And in that book, he basically describes the terrain made up of adult subgroups and subcultures and the attitudes that they bring to this work that eventually turn into behaviors, right? But we decided together, and uh, obviously with his um, lead, to begin to write a book on how we deal with those different subcultures at a school so that this work happens. So his, his famous analogy is one of seeds and soil. The PLC process is the seeds, the soil is the culture, right? So we basically wrote a book on how do you till the soil so that these seeds can actually grow? Because Mike has heard me say it before, Brian, you've heard me say it before, the hardest part about this work isn't the kids. It's how do we get hardworking adults who love kids right. who basically abandon practices that we've been conditioned to believe because we experience them that don't work insofar as producing learning to embrace new practices yeah. and do that with a collective sort of pronoun of we versus I, right? So in our book, we talk about resistance and that resistance is a very natural part of change, but that we distinguish between rational and irrational forms of resistance and how leaders need to be able to sort of, you know, continue forward understanding those dynamics if the PLC process seeds are actually gonna grow. So we were able to really sort of produce something that has helped many schools figure out how to deal with the adult drama piece of this work, what I often refer to as a telenovela of this work, right? Because oftentimes adults struggle with change. And since the PLC process dictates, dictates change, how are we supposed to support adults in embracing the uncomfortableness of change moving forward? And so, you know, jumping off from there, you know, Mike, we you, you talked a little bit about the PLC process, you know, a few minutes ago, but your work really 
talks about and really focuses on making sure that we meet the needs of every single student. And when um, you know we, we teach them the first time and it doesn't work, we just don't move on. We need to make sure that they have the support because all kids don't learn at the same rate or same pace in same way. And so how does your work kind of dovetail um, into what you were just talking about um, earlier? The um, well, one, I'll go back to how you started our, our conversation personally, and that's what drew me to the profession was the idea of every kid deserves the kind of support they need to succeed, and it should be done in a systematic way. The PLC process resonated because it gave the larger structures, the collaborative structures, right? But in the end, um, you know, the purpose of our collaboration is to ensure that all kids learn, Rick. Rick used to say this, he, he said, don't, don't tell me you believe all kids can learn. Show me what you're doing for the kids who aren't learning. Yeah. It's easy to have grand mission statements about we believe all kids can, but there's this tough reality that we're going to teach things and some kids aren't going to get it. And what are we going to do if we commit to it all? And if we expect the solution to be somewhere outside of what we can control, we're going to be waiting a long time. So at one point, will we look internally yeah. to make that happen? So the area that I've done a deep dive in, in, in the last you know, 15, 16 years is, is how do we implement research-based practices in a systematic way to create a, 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 a safety net of, of, of additional time and support that regardless of of the level of support a child might get at home from tremendous to zero right. and regardless of of what prior skills and knowledge a child might walk into a uh, head start to school or sadly you know um, um, not entering school with either behaviors and or skills we would hope a child by this age this time might already know regardless of any of those factors we have the ability as a school to meet that child's needs, and and I will I will tell you I um, I think all of us got to experience it on, on on site. I think one thing that made the three of us extremely effective principals is sometimes you learn about the PLC process or 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 RTI intervention practices, and we make implementing those practices almost an end in themselves. Okay. And, and we're checking off the boxes of the PLC process. We've identified essentials, check. We've, But I think from a leader's point of view, it's just this unrelenting focus on we said every child. And every child might not learn everything, but we've looked through the curriculum, each grade, each course, engaged our teachers in that process, leveraged their expertise, and we've identified the absolutely no matter what, so help us God things, then we know if a child left this year not knowing that, man, are they at risk next year and beyond making it? And how can we just be relentless that if we said all, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be all. And Brian, I've had the privilege of working with some of your dear colleagues from Mason Crest. I think the, the finest elementary school I've ever experienced when it comes to ensuring all kids learn. Well, and you. they would just talk about you, Brian, and how in, in a respectful but just an unrelenting focus of all, all, what are we going to do? And by name, by need, by student, by standard, just a, 
we ain't stopping until every kid in our care is across the finish line on each of these skills and behaviors, period, period. And I think one of the things that, and we all have our stories that drive us. And I think one of the things that drive me, drove me, it was a little bit of guilt because I was literally born into the right family. You know, I, I talked to you about my challenges with learning how to read when I was little and they wanted to re retain me, but my dad was a reading teacher. And I always think about like, what if my dad was not a reading teacher? Where would I be today? You know, and so I'm like, then, and I've heard you say it, Mike. I've heard you say it, Louise. I heard, um, you know, Bob Aker say it in, in different ways. What would we want for our own child? Yep. And what would we do? We'd do anything. And if that's our litmus test, then we should be able to, you know, examine, as you all say, every single practice, policy, program, or procedure through that lens. And we need to be willing to change those practices, programs, procedures, if it doesn't mean all for all. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I often say that our profession is one of a few professions that allows us to be ethically greedy, right? We want more year after year. And it's not because there's some kind of, you know, financial incentive if we get more, but we'll rest easier knowing that every one of the students at our school has reached a level of knowledge and skill that allows them to choose their path in life moving forward. Yeah. So ethical greed, I think, is something that we need to embrace within the context of our profession. Matt, if I bring up uh, just one more thing, because uh, I mean, it's it's so rare that you know we collaborate a ton together, um, and yet we don't always sit and talk about our our, our experiences as site leaders. Um, you talk about change being hard, and we know that to be true. So getting the 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 inertia of yeah. of of that work going takes really focused leadership, and not just leadership of a principal, but shared leadership, right? But we also know that a, a, a defining characteristic of the PLC process is continuous in in improvement. Yep. And did you experience this at, 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 at your old school? Because I, I remember when I was at Pine Pine School, the first couple of years, there was almost a mindset of teachers of, please, no more change, no more change. Oh, yeah. we're yeah. just because I mean, you really got to rethink about a lot of traditional practices. But there was this shift at some point in that, in that when you start to see those changes make a difference for kids. And you're striving to have more and more kids learn all of a sudden change is the way you get that greedy ethical feeling you're talking about Luis. yeah and, yeah. and you and, and you want more of it and more if of it. you're not yeah. trying something new you almost feel like you're dying it's yeah. like the the opposite starts to happen of oh my god we're in a rut and we can't get any farther unless we continue to think about things and and that hard change process becomes actually in some ways the lifeblood yeah. what keeps you going did you guys feel that when you guys were at at your schools yeah I mean I, I did and I, I think the other thing that I I tried to do or we tried to do as the admin team and, and the leadership team is more of the admin team because we we had to do this is while in this process we had to say no to stuff that was coming from the district and all over the place we had to buffer our our teams from outside initiatives and a lot of times our teams didn't know that but our district would say, you need to come to this training or this training. And I would say, no, we're not doing that. And I might get a hit, but I'm like, I'm not doing that. And I, again, it's not being defiant just for the sake of being defiant, but there's, and then these are good people and they want good things for us, but 
you got so many initiatives, you can't take it all in. So Mike, as, as you were saying, Mike, we gain some inertia, but you have to gain inertia by doing the right things, a few right things really well and continue to get better and better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would agree. And, you know, it's funny that you describe it that way, B, because I remember that I became, along with our guiding coalition, the mothership and invisible shield that tried yeah. protecting our faculty and staff. Yeah. All the things that were to um, keep us from focusing on the right work, right? So as you were describing that, that's what I remember. And it's interesting that you say, we, you know, I took some hits because sometimes within the context of a profession that continues to want to do some things the way they've always done them, yeah. Becoming change agents doesn't make you so popular and loved by everybody. No, right? no. There were people at our school site that saw this as so disturbing. And I love it when Mike always tells audiences, we had to distinguish between uncomfortable and unreasonable. Exactly. Well, there's some, there were some people at our school that viewed uncomfortable as unreasonable. You know, and in, in transforming school culture, there's a section that often is skipped over in Dr. Muhammad's work and Anthony's work when he talks about the three Ds, right? He talks about the three Ds that are used by people who are viewing this as unreasonable when it's really uncomfortable. He yeah. says, they're gonna try to distract you. Right. They're gonna try to disrupt you. And in the end, if that doesn't work, they're gonna try to defame you. Defame you, yep. And I think all of us have stories yeah. of not being absolutely applauded by everyone in the world, even though we had data that was demonstrating things were getting sure. better, but, I have stories of teachers, of other administrators, of district people who weren't happy with the changes that we were making, even though there was evidence of learning undoubtedly happening at the same time. So I think that's that's a part of the work that isn't discussed enough. Yeah, This work is going to challenge the status quo, and hence it's going to make some people want to you know, come after you as the target of the uncomfortableness that I'm feeling that I'm perceiving as unreasonable. You know what it's like? It's like um, I'm, I'm playing basketball and, and you are on my on my team and we're playing offense and we're passing the ball and we're trying to get to the goal and the defense is trying to prevent us from getting to that goal. That's what it's like at times. It's like the defense is trying to prevent us and we're like, we're going to score. We're going to score. We're going to figure it out. And so I think that's part of it. But I, I think it takes some courage. And I think, Luis, you're right. It's um, it's not always, you know, uncomfortable. I mean, not always comfortable. And it sometimes um, you, you you scratch your head because you're like, these are also educators. Aren't we on the same team, even if we're not in the same building? I mean, you might have to add some that too, because when I was thinking about our our, our chance to 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 a chat, um, one thing I, I I really want us to to think about, and and Luis just captured it perfectly, and that is this: I can say that that as we started to see better results on site, that, that there were very few educators on our site that continued to push back. Right. Yeah. In the end, I mean, people want what's good for kids. Exactly. And, and it was just the exception. I mean, there was something like, they were resistant at first, like, you're right, it's working, the research is working, the evidence is working, and it lifted spirits. But I can say, so often, not just the three of us, but but many of our colleagues who've led model schools, often some of the worst um, resistance came from administrators above us 
Mm. And it'd be sad to think that you would think if you were a district administrator and a school is producing markedly better results in student learning, you would want to go and say, what's that school doing? Yeah. And how can we replicate that or use that as a leverage point to create more learning? Yeah. And I would say a majority of district administrators I ever worked with and for were phenomenal and incredibly supportive and professionally talented and ethnically, uh, sorry, and ethically right about what they did. But I think all of us experienced some people in key leadership positions that held significant authority that took the success on site as a threat. Yeah. And sadly, started to come after or stop what was going on, even though it was producing better levels of learning. Yeah. I think our, our, our traditional system, and again, not for everybody, but for some people, um, you come up in a traditional system. And so if you're not willing or able to think outside the box or willing to be vulnerable and say, even though you're positionally higher than somebody, else saying, I don't know that process. Can you teach me? And sometimes people are uncomfortable if they are on, quote, the hierarchy, learning from people who are below them. And so sometimes they try to derail it. Yep. yep. Hey, um, somebody asked me this the other day, um, and I'm not traveling as much as I used to, in this, but I, I wanted to kind of have you all talk about your lives as um, people on the road so much. Can you talk about um, the benefits of, of of what you do and and, and any challenges that you have as, as you travel around the country? Well, um, my wife flies for free because I travel Southwest so much that whenever <laughs> we are ready to travel together, she can ride for free with me. That's a good thing. Southwest and and I have more Hilton points than I exactly. Have. I, 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 I say this is not the, the uh, decor of my home. Um, I was going to say, I must say, I would not. This is the <laughs> home to sweets background here. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not quite into uh, quite those colors. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I'll be honest with you. The 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 amount of travel can be tough, especially when you land at midnight and got a two and a half hour drive in front of you. Um, because there's a community that really, really wanted you to help them with regard to some aspect of this work. Right. For me, it continues to be meeting the amazing, amazing educators that I now know exist all over our country. You yeah. know, I am a California guy, um, loved working with California educators and still do. I'm in Sacramento as we record this, but, but to go to Texas and to go to Iowa and then to go to Montana and then you know, Florida and continue traveling and meet educators who are just as passionate about, you know, grasping that ethical greed to ensure that all kids learn is almost like um, empowering to me, right? Yeah. To want to continue this work and to continue to engage in research on how best to help them help the kids that maybe we'll never meet, but we will definitely have had a hand in helping sort of secure a future that maybe they could have never imagined. So, Travel it, itself is tough. I, I don't like being away from my family, and I think we can all agree that can, it can get tough. But yep. the 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 fact that we know that we're helping schools engage in the right work to help kids that we'll never meet but are going to definitely influence continues to be a major reason why I continue to do this. Yeah, it can be energizing for you too as well. 
so, you know, I, 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 I mentioned I did work with lots of bosses above me that were fantastic. Um, I worked for a soup and for an assistant soup of curriculum instruction that, well, I was still site principal. They would let me a couple of days a month go and go and work and consult. Right. Um, I owed those days back to the district. Sure. Um, but what they understood is you learn when you go help other people learn. Exactly. And, and and so if you have a mindset of I can share some things and some research, but I can learn what 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 they're good at or what they're struggling with. Or so I just gained so much from being able to get outside of 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 my district and my county and my state and to be able to see. And then fortunately for all of us out of our country to yeah. be able to see what other countries do. That's <laughs> my my learning i am um, louise captured it well though brian you you you, you like face it too the problem though is you're just away from people that you love so much that your personal yeah i have missed some birthdays and missed some anniversaries of, not my anniversary but <laughs> no, i never missed that one but uh but 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 you know parents you know things like that that there are events that come up and it's like gosh right and the hard ones are the ones you can't predict like this coming saturday i have a very very dear friend who was three years older than me in, in high school that was like a brother to me and he unexpectedly passed away and I, I'm on the road I, I just I can't get back to California to go to 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 both celebrate and honor someone whose life was so important to me yeah. but you make commitments to help other schools and and other kids and they depend upon you and you make that a priority but that's harder to do when your work is not just driving down the street to your school, but flying cross country to work with somebody else. I think one of the things I, I miss about us working together is how much I learned from you all. I mean, for the audience out there, you know, Mike and I and and Luis and, you know, Nicole Dimage and Austin Buffum, um, who else was with us? Um, Sarah Shule, when we were doing our, our, our work together at the institutes, just seeing you all. Um, being on stage with you, and I'm, I'm being honest, it's just, it was, I, 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 it was like a master class for me to sit there and have a first row seat and just learn how you interacted with the audiences. And again, it's not so much, you know, showmanship, although you are masters at connecting with the audience. It's about helping the audience learn, take what we're teaching them and apply it when they go back to their schools. And so for me, I, I miss that part of it because I really learned so much from you too. I think I learned even more, all of us at dinner or uh, yeah. at lunch, you yeah. know, just collaborating together and having that, 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 that time. Together. But a piece of advice that I would give to, to anyone listening to this, no matter what your position is, classroom teacher, instructional coach, principal, district office, and that's purposefully seeking out people that that you can learn with and learn from. Yeah. Um, when I was first an elementary school principal, I seeked out some other principals that had experience and, and had shown evidence of effectiveness that I didn't have. And yep. just really like, can, can we meet? Can I buy you lunch? Can we get together once a month? Would you come to my school and walk classes with me? I, I don't know what I don't know. And right. And but you're seeking out people, and I started seeked out other principals along the way, and I think all of us, you know, the mentorship of Rick and Becky and Bob over the years, and then our friendship, which we don't work as directly on stage together as much as we used to, 
But I mean, Brian, you mentioned we we like text once a week. No, we text every day. <laughs> and and it's and it's usually you that starts us off, Brian. I'm so grateful for that. But but there's rarely a day that we're not communicating in some way. And sometimes it's just how it's family, and sometimes it's someone's attached an article to read, or uh, but it's can you seek out people that are going to help you become the best version of you because they have the ability for us to learn and bring out the best and challenge us in ways that, that make us better. And I, I think one of the things, and, and you two did this for me, and I think you want to seek out people who are going to tell you the truth. I don't know if you remember this, but we we had an institute in, in Hollywood about seven years ago, and I had a, a session where I was just horrible. My scores were horrible. And Mike was like, don't worry about it. It's one thing. You know, I've had sessions like that before. And Louise said, Brian, if you need some help, let me know. And I was so appreciative because we have that type of relationship where we can be vulnerable and open. And I'm like, help me. Let let me. So I wanted to go see Luis's session because I needed some help in, in a certain area. My strength is not telling stories. Your strengths are telling stories. My strength is interacting and helping people move around in those sessions. And so I needed some support. So I, I looked at Luis and said, and Mike, because I've, I've seen you hundreds of times, but you know, putting people around you who can tell you the truth. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the points that I've started realizing is, you know, audiences often refer to us as presenters, right? Yeah. And I've started asking people to introduce me as the teacher for today. Yeah. Because if you think about it, we're still teaching, right? Yeah. And if we're expecting teachers to collaborate around what does best practice look like for them, as they're teaching essential standards, then it would only make sense for the three of us, let's say, to get together and collaborate around how best did we teach the RTI at work process? How best did we teach the fact that everyone is gifted, right? How, how did we teach it? And so one of the most beautiful parts of being um, colleagues and, and great friends with you is exactly that, right? That I get to call Mike Matos and ask him, hey, Mike, what do you think about this? I, just the other day, I shared with Mike a new vision I have for redefining the why. You know, everyone talks about the why of the work right. and so I've categorized it into three different whys. And then in an elevator, Mike looks at me and says, there's one more why you might want to consider. And so I've actually made that part of the, sure. the, the structure. So the fact that we're always learning from one another and never trying to outcompete one another, that's what oh, I love the most. Exactly. Yeah. You just simply want to be the best we can be. And then we applaud our colleague when they do amazing things with their latest book or their latest, yeah. you know. Um, I just want everybody to win. Exactly. And, and that's what's the most beautiful part about this work, right? That we don't compete for glory. We compete for, can we get more audiences to help kids? And let's figure out how to do that together. So. Well, we're almost out of time. I, I have two more questions and then we're going to, we're going to wrap it up. But um who are the people who are most influential in terms of education for you? I mean, besides your parents or, um, you know, family members, who, who have been the, the people who have really influenced the way you do business? Uh, for me, outstanding first principal that hired me, um, Marilyn Kemple, Dr. Marilyn Kemple, uh, because she was about every kid and she was tight about every kid. And, and that made a huge impact. And she empowered me to. Uh, she gave uh, a lot of a lot of uh, loose on how, but yeah. 
a tight on it, it better be good for kids yeah. that was that was huge in my early teaching years without question you know meeting rick and becky and bob just you can't put a price on both their 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 mentorship and their friendship there's not a day that goes by i don't i don't think of them and then as you guys know we have a pretty tight core rti at work team the the three of us and nicole dimage and sarah shul and and bill ferreter and 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 paula maker and i just learned so much from that core team of people and then and then last but certainly not not least our dear friend dr anthony muhammad just had a tremendous impact upon me and both as an educator um as a thought leader and really challenged me to constantly rethink about what we really mean and some of the assumptions we have about our work and our kids. Luis? For me, I've had two people that I think have been influential in my life with regard to the professional aspect of this work. One is Anthony Muhammad, because he is the person that sort of recruited me to really sort of tap into this incredible work that we do. And the other one is Mike Maddows. And I'm not saying that because he's on the screen, but I consider both of those individuals brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and to see them in action and to see how they teach this work and how they are thought leaders and, and take concepts and find a different pathway to, to add to that amazing um, uh, work is, is phenomenal. And so for, for me, in my professional life, those two individuals have been huge with regard to um, helping me see and contribute to this work. Well, my friends, I, I do appreciate you coming on tonight. Um, at the end of every one of my podcasts, um, I use this um, quote from my, my dad's funeral, as I go, I am wearing you. And it really talks about all the people who have helped me along the way, who, who I just put on my shoulders. And you know, when, you're, when you see Brian Butler, you're not seeing Brian Butler, you're seeing all the people who just supported me along the way. And you, know, you two have been you know, at the top of the list, um, the grace, the humility, the compassion, the kindness, the wisdom that you've shown towards me. I am constantly wearing Louise Cruz and Mike Maddow. So I do appreciate you two um, coming on. And um, thanks so much for, for taking some time with me tonight. Pleasure, pleasure B. Love you, man. Love you Love too. You. Your brother and a dear friend. Yep. Thank no you, problem. B. Love you, man. Thank you so much. And whenever you need help with uh, learning how to play ball, just give me a call. I'll be more than happy to help you. <laughs> Before yeah. we go, Luis, you still cannot get a shot off in an NBA game. <laughs> For the record, I can, damn it. And I and I will one day, darn it. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mike Brown has um, some something to say about that. <laughs> so I don't think you can. Anyway, thanks, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Very Thank good. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Subscribe to A Conversation with Brian on Spotify. Oh,